we're looking at the Haftorah um, of Terumah, which basically means the contribution to the gifts um, that the people brought to uh, the tabernacle, the original um, house of God, if you will, um, that was going to be built in the wilderness and actually was built in the wilderness. The uh, Parashah Hashvah for the week is Exodus chapter 25 through 27, verse 19. Um, and it's a very interesting passage. Um, I don't think it's very many people's favorite passage in Exodus, uh, but it does have multiple um, themes that run through the book of Exodus that you'll find over and over that will come up as we look at the Haftarah, which is in First Kings chapter 5, uh, starting in verse 26 of chapter 5. Um, and running through chapter 6, verse 13. And if you're trying to find where 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 26 is, uh, you'll find that it's in the English, starting in verse 12. Uh, there is no verse 26 in the English. Um, it's not that the Hebrew has more or less verses. It's just that they've divided the chapters differently. Um, the chapters sometimes are unfortunately placed, uh, sometimes in both the Hebrew or the English. It is in a location that breaks up the train of thought. Um, and the English and the Hebrew, they had different ideas when it came to where the chapters should match up. Um, so we'll be in the English, we'll be reading from 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 12, and going through chapter 6, verse 13. Um, but just a quick reminder of what we would have read if we had gone through the um, parashah instead. You have the con uh, contributions for the building of the tabernacle. And what that means is each person brought to uh, the builders of the tabernacle. Uh, in this case, I believe it's Aholiav and uh, a buddy whose name I don't have up at the moment. Um, and they bring in their contributions freely. They bring in their gold. They bring in their silver. They bring in uh, bronze. And uh, they, they uh, weave together cloth for the tabernacle. And the various things that are built um, won't actually be built for another, oh, um, eight to ten chapters in the book of Exodus. This is just explaining what will be built. And then it repeats it almost verbatim um, in a couple weeks, uh, except in a couple weeks they will be building it instead of um, wanting to build it, hearing the instructions of how to build it. So the instructions include the building of <clears throat> the Ark of the Covenant. It includes the building of the table of showbread, the lampstand that will go in the tabernacle and give light. Uh, and of course, the actual tabernacle itself, the cloth, the um, outer part of the tabernacle, the inner part of the tabernacle. You have the bronze altar. You have the actual court where people will come and uh, people like Hannah will be able to come and pray, um, even though she would not be allowed to actually enter into the tabernacle itself. Um, she is able to enter into the court of the tabernacle um, and pray there and meet with people like Ellie who uh, prophesy to her that she will have a child. Um, and she's able to uh, hear from God and hear really glorious news for her part. Um, so the connection today is very simple. Uh, in Exodus, you have the building of the tabernacle. In 1 Kings, you have 
of course, the um, building of the temple. So let me bring this over so I can actually read it. Let's go ahead and read the passage so that we know what we're working with. First Kings chapter 5, verse 12, or 26, if you are in the Hebrew, or Aramaic, or probably any number of other languages. And the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon, and the two of them made a treaty. King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered 30,000 men. And he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country, beside Solomon's 3,300 chief officers who were over the work, who had charge of the people who carried on the work. At the king's command, they quarried out great costly stones in order to lay the foundation of the house with dressed stones. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the men of Gebal did the cutting and prepared the timber and the stone to build the house. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Yiv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lowest story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the wall, when the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry, so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, concerning this house that you were building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, so we have quite a number of things to work through here. Um, it might not be the most common uh, scripture to teach from because a lot of people might not find it to be practical um, which I don't understand because it seems quite practical to me um, but I, I do kind of understand it because it's not when are we going to build a temple um, when is this going to happen how are we going to go about this uh, even if we're going to go ahead and build a church or whatever it might be. Um, 
it's not going to happen often. Um, and uh, it seems like nowadays more churches are just buying a uh, warehouse or something than building a church from, from scratch. Although I will say that uh, there are several things that are practical. For instance, um, if you look at the statistics of a church that has a major renovation, a lot of times the actual pastor or elder of that church does not stay within a couple years of that renovation. Um, the, the practice or the difficulties involved with renovating a church or having some kind of a major um, money outlay, whether it's fixing the roof or building a, a children's um, area or uh, even something simple, relatively speaking, like fixing um, the uh, parking lot. Um, these actions can often somehow, even though you would think it's a blessing from God, that you have the ability to build on your church or to renovate or even to fix things that are falling apart. Um, these things should be thought of as blessings from God, and yet so often you will actually find the church starting to split apart, argue, well, it cost too much to do that. It it was too much time to do that. We spent, we should have done this during the summer rather than the winter. We should have done this during the winter rather than the summer, um, whatever it might be. Uh, we should have spent that money doing this ministry, or we should have uh, spent more money so that it lasts a longer period of time. And uh, it just, the person who is running the church, most often the pastor, they just get burnt out from doing something that they feel they shouldn't have to deal with or shouldn't be this impactful on their church. Uh, they would rather have people who are, you know, coming to them and asking them about how they can serve the people in their community or how they can um, serve God or worship God or whatever it might be. Um, and yeah, we also have, of course, in the uh, various situations with, with the Anglican Church, with the Lutheran Church, with um, uh, those are the two major groups right now that are losing their churches uh, for political and theological reasons. And that too can be very difficult. Um, but yeah, sometimes you just have this difficulty, uh, as was even mentioned, you can, you can have a bankruptcy. Right, they just run out of money. They they cannot actually finish the project that they start. Um, and the first thing that I want to talk about is in First Kings chapter five, you have this phrase: King Solomon drafted forced labor out of all Israel, and the draft numbered thirty thousand men. And then again in verse fifteen or 28, 29. Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stone cutters in the hill country. Um, this is a very interesting statement because in our parasha reading, in Exodus, it's very clear um, multiple times. Let me bring this up um, on my computer. It's very clear multiple times that you have this request for the people to bring their gifts freely. So Exodus 25, verse 2. Speak to the people of Israel 
that they take from me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him, he shall receive the con contribution for me. Again, in 35 verse 5, which is when they actually start building the tabernacle. Take from among you a contribution to the Lord. Whoever is of a generous heart, let him bring the Lord's contribution, gold, silver, and bronze. Later on in the same chapter. And they came, everyone whose heart stirred him and everyone whose spirit moved him and brought the Lord's contribution to be used for the tent of meeting and for all its service and for the holy garments. Verse 29 of chapter 35. All the men and women, the people of Israel whose heart moved them to bring anything for the work that the Lord had commanded by Moses to be brought, to be done, brought it as a free will offering to the Lord. In, in Exodus, you have a situation where God calls only for those who want to give, those who are generous, those who are desirous of actually giving their money. They are the only ones who are to bring their gold and silver and bronze. And in fact, in other locations, you have them not only bringing the precious metals, but things that take work, like um, uh, woven garments, woven uh, the tabernacle's um, cloth that goes on the outside of it, woven by the oftentimes the women, um, it says specifically, um, although there were also skilled men who were involved. Uh, you have women who bring mirrors uh, to be uh, made into um, the uh, laven, whatever it's called, the uh, water basin. Um, and you have men who bring in um, their gold, and you have women who bring in their gold, uh, their earrings and their nose rings and whatever else they have. Um, but it's very, very specific in the book of Exodus that it is only those who wish to give. And in fact, at the end, when they're actually uh, um, in our parasha, in, in chapter 25, uh, it says, do this. But when they actually start to build later on in chapter 35 and onwards, um, you see, I believe in chapter 36, that the people give so generously, they give so much that the people who are building, the people who are who are putting together, weaving the things, making the um, golden uh, lampstand, making the altar, all of these different things that require um, uh, this generous offering, they come up to Moses and they will actually tell him, please, Tell the people, stop giving. We can't take anymore. We have too much already. And wouldn't that be amazing if we ever had that situation where we could go to the people and say, you know what? I know it's only September, um, but we don't need any more gifts for the rest of the year because y'all have given more than enough already. Uh, we can uh, we can run our children's programming. We can run our soup kitchen. We can pay uh, the staff what they need, and we have more than enough. We can send it out to to um, people around the world because you've been too, so generous with us. Um, unfortunately, instead, generally, what we have is at the end of December, or depending on your church. Uh, the uh, right before tax season, you'll have this big push of, hey, we really need money. We we uh, we kind of ran out um, and we can't pay everyone or we can't, uh, you know, we, we need more more food for the food pantry. We, we don't have enough. Um, that's very common where I came from. They were always running out of food for the food pantry. Um, even though I would say 
uh, people were pretty generous on average. Unfortunately, just where I lived, um, there were a lot of people who needed food. Um, and by the way, uh, just as an aside, given that this is the time of Lent, I would remind you that uh, Lent isn't just about fasting. Um, in fact, if instead of fasting, you can bring someone over to your house and cook for them and provide food for them, that is what God says he prefers in Isaiah chapter 58. Um, he would prefer it if you didn't stop eating certain foods, but rather if you brought in someone to share what food you have um, with the poor, with the, even it specifically says with the homeless. Uh, now, obviously, you, you would need to be careful. Um, but uh, I have had friends who have done that, and it is a beautiful ministry. Very difficult ministry. Okay, people will steal from you. People will take from you. People will take advantage of you. But it is still a beautiful ministry. Um, but going back to the passage, um, why in Exodus do you have this concept of the people giving freely? And then First Kings, you have this talk of forced labor. Um, I think, first of all, uh, we need to recognize two different things. Um, when you read about the temple, you actually do hear about people giving freely for it. First uh, Chronicles chapter 29. Um, David first uh, gives to the Lord. David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young and inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. So I provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and the bronze for the things of bronze, the iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for settings, antimony, colored stone, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold, own of gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir. 7,000 talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house and for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold and silver for the things of silver. Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the father's houses made their free will offerings as did also the leaders of the tribes the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Yechiel the Gershonite, then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly, but with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord. David the king also rejoiced greatly. So you will find that the people actually gave freely. And when they did, it says specifically that when they gave willingly, they were able to rejoice. Um, now, if you've ever had to give unwillingly, let's say taxes, um, you'll realize that you rarely rejoice in the time of giving. 
I would argue that there are probably very few people who would uh, rejoice in the time of giving. But if there's something you care about, let's say you do care about those who are hungry in your area, do you not rejoice when you're able to give food for the food pantry or go to the local soup kitchen and either provide monetarily or physically or often both, right? It's a time that we can rejoice because we know that what we're doing is good, is useful. And the people here rejoice and David rejoices. Um, now I'm not going to get into too much how David had so much money uh, because it probably came from such things as taxation um, along with having uh, the best land where he could farm. Um, I know uh, specifically it talks quite a bit about Solomon's uh, administrative um, network which includes having the Jezreel Valley as part of his own personal um, farm land. Uh, and, you know, there, there are though times when taxation is a thing, like always. Uh, there never hasn't been a time of taxation. But the people rejoice here. So when we get to 1 Kings chapter 5, verse 13, and it talks about the forced labor. First of all, there are two aspects to this. The forced labor isn't Israelites. Uh, now, this might be controversial, um, and it probably is. Um, but I believe if you go to... Um, Deuteronomy chapter 20. It talks about uh, when the people are going to enter into the land of Canaan. And when they enter into the land of Canaan, of course, we've heard a lot about um, what many um, atheists or, or um, people who dislike or even hate God would call genocide um, where the people of Israel come into the land of Canaan and they end up um, slaughtering towns but in fact here it does say when you draw near to a city to fight against it offer terms of peace that's the first thing that they were to do offer terms of peace to it and if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Right? So on the one hand, uh, they were to make peace with the people if the people of the land made peace with them. On the other hand, you might say, well, how is that any better? They're just making them into slaves. Uh, but you will notice here that Solomon, when he has these forced laborers, which I believe um, Chronicles does specifically mention, um, Second Chronicles chapter 2, I believe, specifically mentions that Solomon did not draft any Israelites. Um, he sets it up so that the men will go to work for one month in a foreign country and then be able to return to their families, their wives, and their land for two months. So he is being a good um, boss, I guess you would call him. Uh, he's allowing the people to work and he, he is making them work. It's forced labor um, of foreigners. And yet, at the same time, he's allowing them to return, spend time at home, etc. Uh, and when you read Solomon's prayer 
at the dedication of the temple, it's very telling that one of the main points that Solomon makes is that when the foreigner, these people, right, who are being forced into labor, these people who are going to Lebanon to, to do some of the work, to bring in the uh, heather trees and to do a lot of the work, Solomon prays over and over that when they come to the temple and when they pray, that God should hear them. Um, and it's not just a passing thing that Solomon barely mentions. Uh, he takes actually a full paragraph just for the foreign workers, for the people who come and worship God at the tabernacle or at the temple. Um, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because uh, I quickly run out of time when I get into a subject. Um, I, I keep talking about it. I don't want to get too much into uh, the 480 years, uh, just because it is a very complicated subject. Um, I will say that uh, everybody has their own opinion um, on uh, that number. Uh, most people would agree that the temple was supposed to be built um, in, oh, 967, I believe it was. Um, and if you go back from 967, this is where you'll get your traditional time for the Exodus of 1446, 47, uh, and they enter into the land in uh, 14, roughly 04, um, 1406, my bad. Um, and so you do have that. Um, you will have arguments that numbers in the Bible um, aren't like the way we think of numbers. Uh, you'll remember that, um, for instance, coin wasn't even really a thing until the time of the Persians, several hundred years later. Um, numbering systems didn't work the same way we do. If some, if the Bible says 1,000 men, it could be 1,000 men, or it could be a unit, one unit of men. Um, and uh, it's not that the Bible is false. It's not that the Bible is stupid. Um as uh, one of the professors at Bari Lang would say, Professor Berman, um, though these, these modes of expression aren't intuitive for us, perhaps it would do well for us to adopt the intellectual and religious humility that the time and place in which the Torah was given employed a different literary aesthetic than the one that is intuitive for us. Um the the way that people thought was different um and and we don't know exactly uh how that works uh we just know that sometimes certain dates are given like um a judge ruled for 20 40 or 80 years you're like well what happened to 17 years or 37 years um and uh, on the other hand, though, I don't want to dismiss the concept that 480 years is possible, that it's actually 480 years and there are actually strong arguments, um, at least from a literary standpoint, that the Exodus was early uh, in the 15th century, 1400s, um, as opposed to what well, is the common thought now of the 12th century? Um, both have their their arguments and both um, can be argued. And I have I have my personal opinion. Um, but I would not say that people who would argue differently than me are arguing against 
scripture. For instance, some people would argue that it is a particular number of generations, 12 generations, which has its own problems. Uh, we know that some, the way that it's counted, it could be 15 generations between the time of the Exodus and uh, the time of, of um, the building of the temple. It could even be 18 generations. Um, and I believe actually um, one of them is uh, 19 generations, if you count from the uh, descendants of the Kohathites um, and, the, and the line of Korah. But all that to say that um, this is probably 967 uh, BC, and um, it is quite a long time after the people leave Egypt, after uh, the parashah for today, which is the building of the tabernacle. They are now finally, finally building the temple of God. Why is that important? Um, first of all, the 480 years is very useful if you're trying to do history. Um, but secondly, from a literary standpoint, um, you have in the book of Deuteronomy many statements about a place that God will choose. Um, the first time you find it is in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go. Uh, you'll see it again um, several times throughout the book of Deuteronomy, uh, verse 11 and 21 of chapter 12. Then to the place that your Lord, that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and the contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. Um it does say, uh, if the place that you, the Lord your God will choose to put his name is too far from you, then you may kill any of your herd or your flock, which the Lord has given you as I have commanded, and you may eat it within your towns whenever you desire, um, which is a topic for another day. Um, there is that availability to offer specific types of sacrifices in your town. Um, now, the Passover, for instance, very specifically says only in Jerusalem uh, when it gets there, or only in the place that God chose, will choose uh, to put his name, I believe. But there are some, specifically uh, the first fruits where you can, or the free will offerings that you can give wherever you might be found. Um, so, why wasn't there a temple before now? It's one of the questions that we, we would ask. 480 years. Of course, the tabernacle makes sense when you're in the wilderness. You have to build it. You have to be able to take it down. You have to be able to move it, put it back up, take it back down, move it. Um, and so a tent makes logical sense. But at the end of Deuteronomy, you have Joshua. And Joshua is going to enter into the land, and he doesn't build a, tap, a temple. He doesn't even find the place that God will choose. They have actually several different places that they uh, end up going to. They have Gilgal. They have um, up north in um, Shem, um, Nablus area, right? You have eventually Shiloh, Shiloh. You have um, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, um, which is right next to uh, Shechem. Um, Shechem. Um, you have several different places that people end up going to. 
um, and worshiping God at. But Joshua doesn't pick one location. And then you have the time of the judges. And they still, you have um, Shiloh at the end of it. When you get to Samuel, and Samuel is going to be at Shiloh with Eli. And um, unfortunately, as they're at the tabernacle, you hear the news that the Philistines have captured the ark. And the Bible talks about how Eli dies. As he hears the news, this terrible news. What the Bible does not mention until Jeremiah is that the Philistines destroyed Shiloh. They destroyed the place of the tabernacle. They destroyed the place where God lived. And it's only in Jeremiah that this comes back up, although I think it is hinted at many times in the book of 1 Samuel. Um, we also have it, I believe, in, in um, literary, uh, historical data as well. Um, but it's only in the time of David that he says, you know what? Why don't we have the temple? A house where God's name can dwell. And you might think to yourself, wait a second, isn't God supposed to choose the place? And it never talks about God choosing the place. It talks about David making his capital in Jerusalem. And then he buys a location in Jerusalem from another king. And he says, oh, I'll turn this place into the house of God. And he goes to his prophet and he tells his prophet, I want to make a house for God and a temple. And his prophet says, good idea. You should do that. And so David's going to build the temple and his prophet agrees with him. And then the prophet goes to bed. Uh, comes back the next day and says, actually, God told me, you aren't the one to build the temple. You're shunning. So what does David do? He buys everything his son needs. He makes the alliance that his son needs. He works with uh, Hiram of, of Tyre. He gathers the gold. He gathers the silver. He gathers the bronze. He gathers all of the um, precious stones that are needed. And he does everything, almost everything, except the actual building of the temple. But why did it take so long? What does it mean that God will choose a place to make his name dwell there? I think this is one of the questions that is asked. What is it that God's name shows? As you read through the Bible, you'll read various people um, calling out on or in the name of the Lord, declaring who their God is. And they do so when God is great, when God is merciful, when God is powerful, when they can show the world, this is who my God is. In the time of the judges, who would have cared if a temple was built? You have the Philistines, of course, in the book of, of uh, 1 Samuel. They hear that the Israelite God is, is coming out 
into the camp to fight. Uh, and they are afraid. But their first instinct is to fight back. As quickly and as, as strongly as they can. Their first instinct isn't to come and worship. Their first instinct isn't to say, oh, right, the God of the Israelites, we should bow down. We should surrender to him. We should listen to what he has to say. The people in the book of Judges constantly run away from God. They constantly rebel against God. And God's name will not be made great in the land. It won't be made great among the nations. And I will remind you that even though Isaiah is going to happen several hundred years later, we already have the hint, or even stronger, in the book of Genesis, that Abraham's descendants Abraham will be a blessing to the nations. Um, and eventually we do learn that the Israelites are to be a light to the nations. They are supposed to have, even as Solomon is going to pray when he dedicates the temple, when the foreigner comes here to worship God, hear his voice. Give ear to the humble, the humble man or woman who travels to this land to worship the God that they have heard about. And that's not going to happen in the time of Joshua when they fight, but they don't actually take the land. They take parts of the land, but large parts they don't take. In fact, um, one of the uh, special workers that Hiram sends to, to help with the building is um, half Danite and half Phoenician uh, because the Danites never uh, took what they were supposed to have. Uh, they had to travel all the way up north. And uh, then once they got to the north, they just kind of integrated like the tribe of Asher into the local culture. Um, and so you have people, even from Abrahamic descent, that don't believe in God. Um, and they, they continue to not believe in God. But finally, in the time of David, you have peace. Towards the end of his reign, uh, during his actual reign, he, he has quite a lot of fighting, which is why he's not allowed to build the temple. He's a man of war. But finally, you have peace all around. And Solomon is allowed to build the temple where God's name will dwell. And God is very particular about where his name will dwell, about where he will dwell. He wants to dwell among his people. That is why he brought Israel out of Egypt, according to Deuter um, Exodus 29. He wants to dwell among his people. And it's telling that at the end of our half Torah, chapter 6, verse 11, Solomon is building this beautiful temple, this gorgeous location, which is going to be one of the greatest in the world. And he's doing so in such a way that he doesn't even have to 
do work on the Temple Mount. His stonemasons are so perfect. They can do their work far away, bring the massive stones to the Temple Mount, put them in place, and it works. Because it is so well done. He has the best craftsman in the world. But what does God say? Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. All right, you're building a house. Regarding the house that you're building, what do I want? Am I going to talk about gold? Am I going to talk about silver? Am I going to talk about beauty and worship? Concerning this house that you are building, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. As Solomon is building the temple, People hear about it. It's interesting because you do have foreigners who travel long distances. The Queen of Sheba. She comes and she says, I've heard about you and I've heard about your temple. And so I traveled all the way here. And it's even better than I heard. Right? But what does God care about? That his people follow him. That they walk in obedience to him. And it's interesting because I looked it up. Because at first when I read this, I'm like, that can't be right. Because in the English, it's in singular. If you, Solomon, follow and obey me, then I will dwell among the children of Israel. Oh, it must be in plural. It's in singular in the Hebrew. Turns out leadership is important. Having a leader who follows God is important. If you are called to be a leader of God, then you first and foremost should be the one who is an example for the people. Obedient. Walking in the ways of God. Um, it doesn't mention it here, but throughout scripture, being humble. Humility. Bowing before God. And if the leader does that, it says here that, well, God tells Solomon that if Solomon does this, then God will dwell among all the children of Israel. He'll dwell in the temple, this house that Solomon is building. This is where he will dwell. Or at least uh, if you're reading through Deuteronomy, it's the place where his name will be. And then you jump forward into the prophets, um, especially Jeremiah. It talks about the opposite, where the people think that God is dwelling among them, but they are not walking in his ways. They are not following his statutes. They are not following his commandments. And so he's going to tell them, it doesn't matter if you have the temple, because I'm not going to walk before you. When the people in Jeremiah, they come and ask Jeremiah to pray that their weapons will be strong against their enemies. Jeremiah goes away. God talks to him. He comes back to them and says, I will strengthen weapons, but they won't be yours. They'll be the weapons of your enemies.
Solomon is allowed to build a temple, a place where God's name is supposed to dwell, where people can call out on the name of the Lord, praying to him, whether they're Israelite or foreigner, or pray in or call out in the name of the Lord, saying, this is my God. Listen to him. He is strong. He redeemed us from Egypt. He brought us out of the land of Egypt with a mighty arm and an outstretched hand. He saved us from all our enemies, which he will save them from many enemies throughout um, the book of Judges over and over. God saves them. When you get to Jehoshaphat, right? God saves the people of Israel when the people of Israel call out to him and ask for his help. At least that time, he helps them when they ask for it. We can't assume, however, That the things we do for God are going to be good. If we don't follow him. And I think that is a huge part of it. Um, you have people in, in the wilderness and they give freely. They give with a generous heart. And you have people in Chronicles, who give with a generous heart. And that is good. And you have people who have talent and skill, and they're able to build these beautiful things. In fact, God has given them the skill to do so. Both in Exodus and here in First Kings. And that is wonderful. If you're artistic, good for you. Uh, I wish some of us got more artistic skill. Um, we all have our own strengths and weaknesses. I have a very little artistic skill from my mom, um, which I probably should have uh, done more with, but I'm not super artistic. Um, but if you have that from God, great. But concerning the house that you're building, concerning the work that you're doing, if you walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all com my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you. And you might say, well, giving to the food pantry is obedience to God. And you'd be right. It is. It's a great start. And it might be a great finish too. The thing that you're supposed to do. But make sure that you're doing it for God. And for your neighbors too. By the way, it's not just for God. It's also for your, your neighbors who need the help. Um, the, the foreigners who are in the land. Take good care of them if you can. I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. It's interesting that so often we hear God say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. But here he says, if. If you walk, then I will not forsake you. Which, uh, might be a good place to stop and let people uh, make their comments and arguments, um, whether they agree or disagree or uh, think that I've gone too far. Um, let's see what, what others have to say.
Thanks for joining us in the scriptures today. You may have noticed that it sounds like this podcast is part of a larger discussion on those scriptures. Well, that's because it is. We welcome you to join us live each Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. Jerusalem time for our online Bible study of Kings and Prophets, Voices from the Haftarah. You can find the sign-up link at our social media pages at Christ Church Jerusalem. This podcast has been a production of Christ Church Jerusalem and CMJ Israel. We'd like to thank our teachers, producers, and most of all, our friends who make this Bible study a joyful endeavor week to week. And in fact, we hope to see you next week. Until then, blessings from Jerusalem.